You're listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast, exploring the rich, flavorful history of Manitoba food and the people who make it, sell it, and eat it. From the packing table to the dinner table, from restaurant specials to grandma's secret recipes, we consider the cultural, social, and commercial aspects of Manitoba food and what it means to us. I'm your host, Kent Davies. As per usual, I'm joined by Manitoba food and business historian, Professor Janice Thiessen. Hi, Kent. What's in the pantry for us today? Well, uh, we're going to talk about the beer industry here in Manitoba. Excellent. Our research questions are always about change over time, and one of the big things that's changed in uh, Manitoba in the last 10 years or so has been uh, the emergence of craft brewing. Oh, great. You know, and that's something that's unique to Manitoba. It's actually, we're kind of late to the table because, you know, craft brewing has taken off in all sorts of markets across North America. But in the last decade or so, there have been places like Half Pints, which we're going to feature in this episode. That's great. Half so, Pints makes one of my favorite beers. Yeah, which which is... It is the Holy Ghost. Of course it is. Yeah. It's actually part of a three-pack, right? It is, it, uh, the Trinity series. So you get the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Yeah, they, they mentioned that they basically use the yeast cultures of one beer to make the next beer to make the next beer. That's right. The Father makes the Son, makes the Holy Ghost. Yeah, yeah. it's a kind of unique brewing process, which is really interesting. Um, yeah, I wish we could even make this longer. They had a wealth of information, both Chris Young and Dave Rudge, the brewmaster and CEO, respectively, of Half Pints, uh, had so much insight into how the industry has changed over time. One of the things we cover in this episode is uh, talking about how this new style craft beer uh, came to market in, in Manitoba and how that's changed kind of the tastes of everyday consumers. Yeah, there seem to be a lot of really strong opinions about craft beer. People are either very pro or very against. And one of the things that I found through my research was um, local independent brewing was basically the standard for many years here in Manitoba and only through the process of consolidation. Small independent brewers getting, you know, forced out from competition or bought out through competition and they're consolidated over time and then they keep consolidating to the point where they move out of the province. Basically, it just opens up the market. So a lot of the, you know, smaller independent brewers such as Agassiz and Fort Gary were established by former brewers at uh, the big ones, Labatt and Molson's. So in this episode, we're going to learn about business cycles, business history, but through the not-so-hard-to-take medium of beer. Yes. Nice. Beer. An alcoholic beverage made from malted grain, usually barley, water, with other herb and spice flavors, such as hops, fermented with yeast, and there you have it, beer. Evidence suggests beer has been brewed in Canada for at least 450 years, or even longer. The expansion of beer production in the 1800s came out of countries like Germany and Austria, which made mostly lagers and wheat beers, and then England and Ireland, which are known for their ales and stouts. European beer's transplantation to North America followed the movement of colonial settlers. Among them would be John Molson, John Labatt, and George Sleeman who went on to become giants of the industry, responsible for growing beer production in Canada and establishing some of Canada's first railroads, banks, businesses, schools, and theaters. Manitoba's earliest recorded beer history starts in 1668, when Captain Zachariah Gillam, from the famous ship the Nonsuch, had his crew brew a supply of beer that would last them through the winter. 
One of the first commercial breweries in Canada was established by the Hudson's Bay Company at Lower Fort Garry and operated intermittently from 1847 to 1868. The production of beer has always been a staple within Manitoba throughout its history. From small, independent regional breweries to the emergence of local brewing giants like E.L. Drury and George Shea. Prohibition, the Depression, and World War II would eventually lead to the decline of independent breweries in Manitoba. This coupled with changes in technology, marketing, and distribution would result in the rapid consolidation of Canada's brewing industry in the hands of a few companies. Labatt, Carling, and Molson who, from the 1960s on, struck alliances with even bigger American firms, eventually consolidating and then abandoning plants here in Manitoba in the 1980s. These plant closures in some ways led to re-establishing the local beer market we have today. In many ways, the story of beer in Manitoba and how it was made, sold, and distributed over time represents what many staple businesses face under market forces. Small businesses growing profitable, being bought out by even bigger businesses, which in turn consolidate further, move away, and sooner or later the whole cycle starts again. Today, craft-style beer has become a significant force, both in sales and interest among North American consumers. In Manitoba, craft-style beer production has steadily increased in dollars and liters over the past few years, accounting for approximately 12% of the total beer liter sales in the province. Relatively new local craft breweries like Torque, Barnhammer, Transcanada, Nonsuch, and Little Brown Jug have established themselves as staple brands on vendor shelves and in restaurants and pubs across Winnipeg. While one could view the resurgence of the small craft breweries as simply a pushback of overconsolidation and the growing consumer interest in supporting local brands, one factor has changed the market significantly in only a matter of years. Taste. This is where a morning will start. So Hamu, who generally starts at six in the morning, uh, will first start in here. He'll be putting bags of grain into this hopper that feeds a two-row mill inside here that feeds an auger and out into the brew house. Uh, takes this is Chris Young, brewmaster of Half Pints Brewing Company. He's giving a tour of the Half Pints Brewing facility. Long before the trend of craft brewing reached Manitoba, establishments like Half Pints were trying to make beer differently. Young recalls the biggest challenge for Half Pints, as well as craft breweries in general in the early 2000s, was trying to break Manitoba's addiction to normal, everyday beer. You know what I mean. Labatt 50, Blue, Canadian, Keefs, Pills, Club, Dry, Bud, and of course OV. These dark bottled beers are synonymous with community halls, dive bars, legions, and curling rinks across the province. The type of beer sometimes referred to as dad beer. You know, for me, from what I remember, it was just uh, a lot of people's reaction to drinking a beer that tasted different than that beer that they've been drinking for so many years, where the market was flooded by uh, pale American lagers, um, and they were all kind of similar. Uh, everyone says, no, Bud's better than Blue's, better than Molson Canadian, but really when it comes down to it, those are all pretty similar tasting beers. So our beers came out, and you know, we came out with a coffee stout, a really bitter IPA, and a pretty a malt heavy forward British style pub draft beer, our, our Bulldog Amber. And these were pretty boundary pushing for people that weren't used to that. So that initial hump of like people's faces that looked like you had done something wrong to them when they had a sip of your beer until you know you could kind of explain, well what you're tasting 
is actually malt, or what you're tasting is hops. Uh, and what you're tasting, oh, that's roasted barley. That's kind of like a Guinness, but a little bit stronger. So it took a long learning process just to, I think, get people used to there was another world out there than just than just a, just a plain American-style lager. I'll say that this beer shouldn't be typecast. It's just for the dads. In the early 2000s, my beer of choice, and the choice of amongst many university students, regardless of background, was remarkably standard. Ever since it came to market in 1927, Manitobans have had a love affair with a beer called Standard. For those coming to Manitoba, Standard is often mistaken for Budweiser, not in taste, but because of the similarities between the labels. Anheuser-Busch, the brewers of Budweiser, even sued Carling, who owned Standard before Molson Coors took over, because of how closely the two bottles resembled each other. Standard won. In the early years of my adult life, if you could squeeze together enough beer money amongst your friends, the choice would be always a 12 standard. If you bought beers for a band at a show, it would be a round of standards. I remember making giant red pyramids out of boxes of empty standards as a monument to the brand I loved. At the time, it was clear that brand loyalty was prevalent amongst consumers of beer. So getting Manitobans to switch to a local brand wasn't going to be easy. People choose a beer at a certain age for whatever reason and stick with it. Uh, it's certainly changing now, like there's a lot of people, I know myself included, I'll go to the liquor store and I'll just buy a single bottle of three or four different things. But um, yeah, there's a lot of people that just sort of stick, choose their beer and stick with it and just kind of explain to people why they should try something new. Uh, it was a bit tough as well. However, the folks at Half Pints knew what was going on outside of Manitoba. Craft beer was taking off. Across North America, in places like Washington, B.C., Quebec, Colorado, and even Alaska, craft beer producers were rivaling bigger producers for market shares, making everything from Belgian saisons to French-style beer de garde to stouts and even sours. Half Pints knew the potential for new possibilities of craft beer made in Manitoba was evident. They just needed to get through to the right crowd. So if you wanted to pigeonhole me, you would, you would have called me in the in the mid 90s a straight edge punk rock kid and i didn't really drink per se or try stuff this is dave rudge owner and ceo of half pints brewing company interestingly enough rudge wasn't even into drinking beer until his 20s then one night at a punk show a friend of his handed him something that would change his life you know what is that and he's like it's guinness and i was like what's that and he's like here try it and i drank directly from this warm can that he handed me and I, I looked at him and I said to him, it tastes like wood. And um, I learned later in life that uh, Guinness at that time was still finished and aged in giant oak tanks. That's when Rudge realized he had a palate for beer. Following the Guinness revelation, Rudge's newfound curiosity in beer grew as he toured with the band Fallen Short. You know, I kind of got into a group of guys that were all like, you know, a few of them played instruments, so, you know, I'd been playing guitar since, uh, like, 1982, since I was, like, eight years old, seven years old, you know, and it was, it was one of those things that was like, okay, I play guitar, well, okay, now we're all into punk rock, so, hey, we should start a band, and, you know, we started off with a band called Nothing Days, and then I was in Fallen Short. I kind of learned a lot of, of what we liked about beer, what I ended up liking about beer while we were out on tour, and I learned to discover different things while we were out on tour, so, 
Uh, one of the shows we played in Calgary at the at the Rev, you know, we got paid in beer and like a little bit of cash, and the headliner band didn't show up. Agent Orange didn't show up, right? And it was like, okay, these guys didn't show up, so we're gonna play and do our things. The Bucko guys are gonna play and do our things. We're just gonna drink a bunch of beer and not worry about it, right? Because they got these guys had gotten stopped at the border and couldn't come across. So I discovered, you know, Big Rock Grasshopper, and then the one of the guys on tour, French Canadian guy Dave Larue played bass for Bucko and we stayed over at his dad's place and Dave LaRue was like, oh, we gotta go get some St. Ambrose oatmeal stout, right? You'll really like this beer. And I was just like, okay, yeah, oh man, that beer's fantastic compared to the Big Rock Grasshopper that we've been drinking for free, you know, like what, whatever. It was like, oh, that's fantastic. So you start to discover all these different things, right? The thing is, is that you never turn down a beer when you're on tour. No. You never turn one down. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. Rudge's fascination with beer developed into an obsession, and it wasn't long until he started making his own beer, starting where most brewmasters start, making homebrew. I started getting into homebrewing August 1st, 1997, and I got my brew kit delivered from Safeway. So I bought a Cooper's Lager kit and uh, a bag of corn sugar and, and a homebrewing kit, and I brewed a batch of beer. And this batch of beer was god-awful. Like, it was so bad, and I drank it. And it was just one of those things where it was like, okay, I can do better than this. I know I can do better than this. At the time, Rudge was working as a cook in an Italian restaurant and wanted to make a batch of beer as good as he knew how to make a great meal. However, his tendency for experimenting in the kitchen also led him to make some pretty curious creations. You know, I was doing all kinds of weird stuff, like I would get honey from the farmer, you know, take home 30 pounds of honey and ferment that. And then I had two apple trees in the backyard. So I'd crush the apples and I blended everything together. And there you go, I was making that. And I won a bunch of awards for that because I entered it in on subsequent years, you know. I got some of the worst scores at a, at a beer competition ever for one of my beers that I entered. And the guys were like, this is awful. And they're like, don't ever enter this again in anything. The next year I entered the exact same beer and uh, I had doctored it because it, it was like, it was like, oh, it doesn't have enough of this, it doesn't have enough of this. It's not acidic enough. I was trying to make a real sour Belgian beer. So I added a bunch of acidity to it and then re-entered it and, and I scored higher, right? So I was like, well, this is really weird. I'm using the same beer to enter over and over and over again. So I think I entered it three years in a row and on the third year, on the third year, I scored something like a 40 out of 50 on it. I was like, it's the same beer. It's just, it's older, right? And the really comical thing about that is I still have one bottle left of that beer, right? And that was, that was I bottled that beer in 1999, right? And I still have one bottle of beer that sits on my counter, in my face, it's always there, it's just, it's there. And the last time we opened one, it was fantastic, but <laughs> it took that long until it was good. While he may have eventually won over the critics, Rudge wanted to take his brewing education to the next level. It came to a point where it was like, Okay, now my brewing hobby has essentially taken over. I got a job in the industry. I started working at a place called The Hop and Vine in Charleswood. I worked there for about maybe four years or so. Started really getting into it at that point. As I was working there, I decided that I was gonna go to school and I settled on the American Craft Brewers Guild in the States because I could do most of the program from home. <laughs> They'd send you a big rack of VHS tapes and you'd do all the lectures and everything at home. It was a blended program where they had online components to it, which at that time it was like, you know, yeah, dial up your modem and, and get into the online chat or whatever. It was pretty, 
pretty weird. And then go down to the States and do the flavor training and the testing and all that stuff. So I actually, when I finished, I had my full out brewmaster's diploma. It was a situation where it was like, okay, I'm gonna use that as the stepping stone to now I wanna get into the industry, right? Which at the time in the industry, everybody was getting into the industry without an education. So when you come to somebody and you say, I'm educated already and I've got the brewing education, it makes it a lot easier to get job offers. So I got a job offer at a place called The Bushwhacker in Regina. At that time, it was one of the top five brew pubs in Canada. So it was great, they kind of threw me to the wolves and said, here's the equipment, go brew. From there on in, it just kind of snowballs. The day I started home brewing as a hobby to the day I started as the head brewer at the Bushwhacker, that time was about four and a quarter years. Even after making it to the position of head brewer at the Bushwhacker Brewing Company, Rudge still wasn't satisfied. You're doing your thing, you're brewing, you're, you're constantly just kind of keeping up with stuff and brewing new stuff. And I kind of thought to myself, okay, it'd be a real good idea to have my own brewery, right? Because I am getting a chance to do everything I want to do. It's just I'd much rather have my own name on it than someone else's. Moved back to Winnipeg in, on May 27th of, of 2005. Got everything together. I got enrolled in some business school stuff through the Y uh, and through the employment insurance programs. And then turned around and wrote a business plan and started Half Pints. A lot of work and organization has to go into making a brewery from scratch, especially in the early days when the industry wasn't established. While Rudge was convinced he could do it, it was difficult to know where to start. Then he got some advice from another Winnipeg entrepreneur, Travis Boyd of Black Pearl Coffee. Uh, Travis was one of the people that, that when I was doing um, research for the brewery, Travis was one of the people who put things very forward to us, to me to say, you know, David, you're thinking about this, you know, you're, you're thinking about starting a brewery and so on and so forth. You know what? Just get a building and everything else will fall into line. And he was absolutely correct. And I didn't realize just how correct it was, right? Nothing happens in the city of Winnipeg unless you have a building. So you need to take the chance first to say, okay, now that I have a building, I have an idea as to what my costs are going to be. Now I know how much I have to brew to meet those costs and so on and so forth. So nothing can happen until you have a building. Rudge took his advice, and not before long, Half Pints was in business. We signed a lease on our stuff on Kuwait and there, maybe a little bit slightly ignorantly, but you know, when we signed our lease on that, it was like, okay, we know we need to, we need to do this to move forward. You know, basically, shit your pants and dive right in. That's essentially how it is. Half Pints opened with two beers to its name. The Bulldog Amber Ale was a homebrew recipe that was based on soft Vienna ale. So what I was doing was I was brewing like a really soft Vienna style lager, but with an ale yeast. I changed the recipe up a little bit, started mucking with a little bit, maybe added a little bit of a different yeast to it and said, okay, this is what I'm gonna do now. So when I did my first sort of um, call for shareholders and I had a meeting, you know, that was one of the beers that I was able to pull out and say, this is one of the beers we're gonna brew. The Sturstick Stout, which was made with Black Pearl Coffee, was another signature Half Pints brand. The Sturstick Stout was a little bit of a different animal because I knew I wanted to have a stout on the roster and I wanted to have a coffee stout on the roster. I actually ended up getting 26 different coffees and whittling it down to about six, seven coffees that I really enjoyed the aroma of and the flavor of, and then made six two-liter bottles of Sturstick Stout, but with different coffees and then settled on the Ethiopian Yirgacheff coffee. After that came the little scrapper. Um, we brewed an IPA because we're, we're a craft brewery and craft brewery should have an IPA. 
Um, but I was only set up to brew at maximum, you know, two, maybe three beers at a time, right? So I brewed the Little Scrapper IPA as our first seasonal beer when we came out. And then I got a phone call from a fellow named Stu who worked for the uh, Liquor Mart and he says to me, you don't have any more IPA? No. He's like, you know that's your best selling beer, right? Because we didn't sign up with the MLCC. They have this program where you can sign up with the MLCC, pay them money, and you can check your sales and everything like that. It's like, why do I need to check sales with the MLCC? I can see what I'm going through, right? Stu phones me up and he says to me, that's your best selling beer. You don't want to drop this. He's like, you need to make more. And it's like, that's the first time I took advice from somebody from the outside of just like, you know what? Yeah, maybe that is a good idea. Maybe I should brew more of that. And then all of a sudden it's our second best selling beer, you know? At the time, these kind of beers were somewhat of a departure from what was getting brewed in Manitoba. With a few exceptions, like Fort Gary Brewing Company, who's known for their signature dark English ale, a few established local breweries in Manitoba opt for more cleaner drinking lagers and ales over the kinds of beers that are being made in the craft brewing communities elsewhere. Early on, Half Pints also struggled against established industry practices that prevented Half Pints from being on tap in restaurants and on the shelf at the Manitoba Liquor Commission. The real challenge that we had when we first started up was I assumed that people would want to have the beer on tap because it was a local beer and bartenders and restaurants don't really care if it was a local beer. What they cared about was getting kickbacks. So there was a whole bunch of places we didn't get into and people would say to us, um, how come you're not in so-and-so vendor? It's like, well, because I didn't give them t-shirts and hats, you know, or how come you're not in so-and-so restaurant? Well, I didn't pay... 250 bucks to be on tap at that restaurant. So that's kind of interesting, right? I didn't anticipate that, that, that it would be a situation where it would be like, okay, right from word one, if you're a small brewery, people are gonna ask you to pay for things. So what did happen was the first year when we were open, I had this interesting conversation with someone from the, from the liquor mart and they said to us, um, you know, Christmas is coming. You really ought to put a pack out that has you know, a bottle of beer and a glass or something like that for promotion, or you should give away keychains, or you should put t-shirts in the glass or something like that, or in a, in a, in a box with some beer and, you know, put it out there for a, for a price, whatever it is, right? It's like, eh, no. Despite getting told repeatedly to pay up or use promotional gimmicks and giveaways to move half pints, Rudge stuck to his guns, confident that the beer would sell itself. And eventually, it worked. I'm going to sell a $10 beer. Right? You're gonna what? I'm gonna sell a $10 beer. How are you gonna get $10 for a bottle of beer? And it was just like, just watch me. So that was the first year that we put out the Burley wine in 2006. And I mean, God, we put it on the shelves and it was on the shelves for like two hours or so. And we get a phone call, you know, uh, I need to order more, right? Because I only ordered one or two cases because I didn't think it would sell. And it's just, we can't keep it in stock. So we start firing off bottles and start sending out more stuff, right? Then you get a phone call Monday morning. Okay, we're out of that beer again, we need more. After that, the people at the liquor stores didn't question. When Half Pints grew out of their Bannatine location and relocated to its new home on Roseberry Street in St. James, Rudge and company made the decision to meet Manitoba consumers halfway and add a new beer to its roster. One that would appeal to those who liked the clean drinking taste of everyday beer. And they named it after their new location. The very first batch of beer that we brewed here was the little was the St. James Pale Ale, right? And what we did was we brewed a batch of St. James here, split the split the yeast cultures uh, out, 
and moved it between like four different uh, four different fermenters to get the yeast culture started for the brewery, and then pulled um, a keg out of those out of the tanks so that we could test it and see what it was like. Right, we brewed one test batch where it was keg only, and sent it off to the to the King's Head, and they sold like half of a half of a tank of beer in a day and a half. Then it's like scrambling to try and brew the next batch. Brew another batch, it sells out in three days, right? Then it's like, okay, now what are we gonna do? Now, this can't just remain as a draft-only beer, so what are we gonna do? Now we're gonna have to bottle this, we're gonna have to package this. So there was a mad scramble to get the labels done, get everything happening, make everything happen, and then from day one, as soon as we put that St. James Pale Ale out, um, because we all of a sudden offered all of the restaurants and bars an option that was a little bit softer than our bulldog and a little closer to what people people assume is normal everyday beer yeah it was just like wildfire right saint james pale ale went on to outsell every other beer they had made at that point and remains a bestseller to this day with the four flagship beers in place and the brand gaining notoriety half pints now faced another unexpected challenge when manitobans tried to order it from their local establishments Here's Chris Young again. It was a little confusing in the early 2000s, I guess, when we first started. You would go and ask for a half pint somewhere, and they say, yes, of course, we have half pints of everything. Uh, but they didn't realize you were trying to get a little scrapper or a bulldog. Most places, it still happens every now and again, but most places know that uh, when I ask that, I'm asking for a scrapper or a St. James or something. While confusion over the name would take some time to resolve in drinking establishments, if you asked for half pints at a Winnipeg venue, chances are they knew what you were talking about. Since the start, Rudge had tried to connect half pints with the community that led him to his career in beer. The stuff that's really cool, like, you know, when we partnered up the Transistor 66 guys, like, art and, and a lot of the bands, some of the bands, the guys work here, right? So it's like, okay, yeah, if we're gonna do something, let's do something with people that, that we wanna do stuff with and wanna support. We wanna support the guys that work here, so when somebody says, hey, will you kick in a few cases of beer for our show? Yeah, for sure. Half Pints partnered with local venues, music labels, sponsored community radio stations, and made special brews for music festivals and events. This got Half Pints into the hands of bands and showgoers becoming a favorite amongst the Winnipeg music scene. Over the past few years, other craft breweries started to appear in Winnipeg. Nonsuch, Barnhammer, Little Brown Jug, Stone Angel, Trans-Canada Torque, and One Great City. Yet despite the growth of the craft brewing industry, the majority of the 75 million liters sold in Manitoba each year is still the product of the big three Canadian brewers, and often made outside of the province. Additionally, the practice of larger breweries buying up smaller ones has started again. For instance, Quebec's Unibro, makers of the famous beer Blanche de Chambly, was purchased by Sleeman in 2004, which was itself taken over by Sapporo in 2006. Toronto's Mill Street and Quebec's Archibald are owned by Labatt. Even BC's Granville Island, whose moniker is Canada's first microbrewery, is now owned by Molson Coors. This consolidation of the beer industry bothers Rudge. I don't know, I'm still angry about the fact that they deregulated the, the province, um, said, okay, we're gonna deregulate and you're not gonna have to brew beer in the province that you sell beer. 
what happened was, is Molson shut down first. They used to be on the corner of Redwood, Redwood and Main. And then Labatt shut down right afterwards, right? Like a year later, Labatt shut down. And what it is, is it's a kick in the teeth to, to the province because you're just basically throwing manufacturing jobs to Barrie, Ontario, or to Edmonton, or Vancouver, or whatever it is. The big companies can't keep efficient. You can't stay efficient and remain efficient as a huge brewery in a small market, right? You just can't. So it's really interesting to see that, you know, the more we nipped at their heels, the more it became a problem for them. That's a good thing because, you know, we come back and all of a sudden, you know, here you go, we're going to start hiring people and, you know, the guys at Fort Gary are still employing people, so on and so forth, because people want to be able to go and actually see things running. While Half Pints was successful in carving out a dedicated consumer base in Winnipeg, Rudge points out that some of Half Pints' success has been dependent on being true to their name, relatively small in scale, and in how they operate. Half Pints was like, I don't want to pay a lot of overhead. I don't want to pay a lot for equipment. So we're going to buy used equipment. We're going to keep things on the down low so that, so that we can keep our heads above water and not have this huge nut to crack of like, oh my God, we got to sell so much beer because we're, our costs are just out of, out of bounds, completely out of bounds. I know less now than I knew then, and I think we're doing okay, you know what I mean? So it's one of those things where I think it's just an acceptance of, okay, this is kind of the place that we've carved out for ourselves. I'm quite happy with that. Now, how do we want to be maybe a little bit more active and a little bit more savvy in, in kind of how we, how we approach it? Right, so it's it's no longer like you know I go in a go to these events or something like that in a in a half ripped t-shirt and a and a you know like a, like having not eaten because we just didn't have any time that kind of thing you know so we got to be a little bit more vocal and we have been a little bit more vocal over the last say year or so you know about we're half pints we're here here we are right because there's still out of the 800,000 people in Winnipeg, right, there's, there's still probably 600,000 that have no, re no idea we exist. While Rudge's story is in part similar to the new wave of craft brewers in Manitoba, it's unique when you consider when Half Pint started and what they managed to do only in a short amount of time. While Two Rivers, Agassiz, and Fort Gary breweries should be credited as establishing the local brewing industry again in Manitoba, Half Pints helped push the industry towards diversifying the kind of beers that could be made and sold locally. Here's Chris Young again. Sure, there's four or five brewers at other breweries that used to work here as well. So, you know, whether we wanted to or not, we were training other brewers uh, for years while they worked here to go work somewhere else. Um, but that hasn't really stopped us from doing what we do. Yeah, if anything, it's, uh, it's made us want to make better beer. Um, and like, okay, yeah, we've been known as kind of pioneers for these kind of styles, but now it's, it's kind of pushing us to research more and, and continue to be pioneers of styles in the city uh, and just to see what we can do to, to keep sort of pushing the whole scene. My history starts in the brewing industry with you know, Fort Gary and Agassiz and those guys. So that era of like 1997, 98, somewhere in that range. Having known the guys from Two Rivers, from Agassiz, from Fort Gary or stuff, there is a lot of people out there that, that know 
quite a bit about the industry, mm-hmm. you know, that are that have been doing it for a long time that we just don't see working in the industry, right? Like you just don't see the guys from the, the box manufacturer that, that he's always dealt with everybody or the yeah. label guy that he's always dealt with everybody. There's all these people that are working to do this kind of like coordinated dance to make things happen on a daily basis. Right. So like when people say to, say to you, oh yeah, you're a pioneer in the industry or whatever, it's like, no, not really. I'm just part of that kind of cog of what is happening all the time, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You know, like there's always been breweries in Manitoba right since York Factory. It's one of those things where you kind of say to yourself, well, the brewers are always just kind of, people come, so therefore the brewers come, and therefore, you know, the grain gets grown, and therefore, you know, the hops get grown, and therefore the glass factory on the shores of of Lake Winnipeg, you know, gets huge, and you know, like all this weird stuff that just happens in this kind of coordinated dance, and stuff comes and goes over the years that nobody knows anything about, but it's still, it's still all working. And the one beer that I wait for here to come off the bottling line is the Weisenheimer. When that beer comes off the end of the bottling line, the first two bottles are both of them. And it's just like, yeah, that, that is, as far as I'm concerned, that's the best it could possibly get. You've been listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast produced by myself, Kent Davies, hosted by Janice Thiessen and myself. Kimberly Moore creates the photos and images that accompany each podcast and is also our web designer. Sarah Story is our project coordinator. Our theme music is by Robert Kenning. Preserves is recorded at the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center. You can check out the OHC and all the work we do at oralhistorycenter.ca. For more Manitoba Food History Project content, information, and events, go to manitobafoodhistory.ca. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have a Manitoba food story that you want to share, contact us by clicking on the contact link on our website. Preserves is made possible by a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Thanks for listening.